Thanks, uh, Kevin and Adam, for leading us uh, in that song that once again points, points our hearts to the one and only true living triune God. Let's uh, give our time to the Lord tonight. Father, thanks for gathering us here again. We're thankful uh, once again for the food. We're thankful for the fellowship. We're thankful that all of this is fellowship around the truth and our love for Christ, the living word, and his written word. Uh, So, Lord, I do pray that you would uh, bless our time tonight. Help us as we look briefly at uh, this section of your holy scriptures, that we would take what we hear and read and, and learn to heart And then with your help, by your spirit, uh, put it into practice in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. All right, you should uh, have received a a handout. And uh, it has uh, certainly all the verses we're going to look at tonight. And I actually will be reading them so you can read along with us. But just some thoughts before we begin. This is about a speech tonight. The book of Proverbs works well for these kind of thematic studies where you just go through and trace a theme all the way through it and see all that Proverbs says about it. There are quite a number of verses on speech and communication, the use of the tongue. What you have in your little handout there is only a portion of those. But before we look into the book of Proverbs tonight for the counsel that God has for us there, I want to first uh, just lay the groundwork for it on the topic of communication by summarizing uh, some teaching from uh, Paul Tripp that you find in his book, A War of Words. And so I'll try to do justice to to summarizing that. I think uh, some of his thoughts that are found there will help introduce this lesson tonight. Uh, First of all, we just sort of need to take a step back and, and understand just how important speech and communication is to us, uh, what it means to, to even being human. Think about it. Our world and everything about our existence hinges on this ability to communicate in some way. It really doesn't matter what your career is or your job, uh, what you, you do every day. There is communication going on. And we can experience the negative side of this when we're around somebody who uh, does not communicate well or communicate sinfully, or even when you go to various parts of the world and and you go to a a country where there's a different language spoken. I mean, their communication is fine. It's just that uh, you and, and they don't speak the same language. And so when you're traveling and you are especially trying to minister in another country, uh, in another culture, it makes it so difficult and uh, it can be frustrating at times because of the language barrier, uh, we call it, when you can't speak their language. And you resort to all kinds of techniques, whether it's pictures or charades or writing things out or pointing or whatever, just to get your thought about. I've been to Italy now probably about 30 times since 1995 and uh, have learned, a, you know, some of the language along the way, and so it can make my way around the country. But, but everything I've learned, and when I converse with people over there, I can only speak in the present tense. And so, when I'm saying something that needs to be the past tense, I just say it in the present tense, and I point backwards like this, and they just sort of get the get the message somehow. And so, that's the kind of things you do in order to get your your point uh, across. It's very basic. To being, to being human, even in the most challenging situations, uh, we will seek out ways to make communication happen. 
You ever read some of that or seen it in a movie or something, you know, where those POWs, like during the Vietnam War, you know, were, were in prison camps or maybe other wars as well, how they would communicate with one another. They would develop a, a tapping system in order to be able to speak to one another and, uh, through the, the, the walls uh, just because they're desperate to communicate with one another. Uh, out in California, part of my responsibility for a while when I was put over all the adult ministries of the church was being over the deaf ministry that's a very vibrant ministry at Grace Church there. And they have quite a number of deaf people and some skilled interpreters. And so I I did try to learn just a little bit uh, of the language, not much at all really uh, to be able to communicate with it, but to understand it, how it works, and to understand the fact that it's when they're signing, they're, they're not signing English. It's, it's a different language with a different syntax. And uh, I needed to learn a, even a little bit about their, their, their culture. So I was always amazed by those in the deaf community, how they developed a, an entire language. And other countries have their own. They don't necessarily use at all American sign language, you know, in Germany or Russia, but they have their version of that. And, and it's so important that uh, how they use their hands, the hand motions, and their facial expressions are very important in, in, in when they communicate to one another. And who isn't amazed at the story of someone like Helen Keller, uh, born both blind and deaf, and, and yet she learned to communicate, just making the point that communication is important. It's powerful. It's significant. So again, despite your, or regardless your career, your job, we, we are all actually in the communication business in one way or another because it's important to every relationship, every job, at least to some degree. Now, Proverbs has a lot to say about it, and just one verse to start, you may not actually have this one in your notes, but it's Proverbs 18.21. Uh, there's a verse there that just... Uh, proves how powerful communication is. Proverbs 18.21 makes this statement that death and life are in the power of the tongue. That's hyperbole, but it makes a clear point. That's how powerful communication is. It, it holds the keys to death and life in some sense. It, it just means that the potency of your words is tremendous. Now, what makes our communication so significant is not only how much we need it, but why we even have it and where it comes from. Its source is the Lord himself. It is God who gave human speech its significance. He is the one that ordained for communication to take place between his creatures and between his creatures and himself and himself and his creatures. You can go all all the way back to the book of Genesis and see how communication takes place at creation. God spoke, but once man was formed, uh, communications continued God to man and man to God. You get to Genesis chapter 3, there's a lot of communication going on there associated with the fall. As you study the rest of Scripture, you realize words are significant to the whole plan of redemption. So creation, fall, redemption, in fact, all the talk of the world, if you think about it, is related to those three events in one way or another. So let's just think about creation for a moment. The value of every aspect of human communication is rooted in the fact that God spoke 
He spoke, created the world out of nothing, and then into this world that he created came the voice of God speaking words of human language to Adam and Eve. There was a language. People wonder about that. What what did they speak? We don't know. They spoke some language that God ordained, God created, they understood it. And so God revealed himself that way to Adam and Eve through words. He revealed his character that way. He began to define his ways and his will through communication. It gave them an identity that they could hear and and speak back to him. And he even gave them the ability, Adam and Eve, to communicate with one another. That ability made them unique in all of creation, and that's still true today. And I know that people spend lots of money on, on experimentation and, and uh, sort of projects and things to, to understand the language of dolphins and baboons and so forth. But whatever it is they do, it's not anywhere near at the level of what human beings can do. We can actually take our thoughts and we can think things that animals can't think about the future and we can be aware of our own self and presence and we can wonder about things and dream about things. I have a cat now, as you know, and I don't think my cat is lying there in the sun, you know, wondering about tomorrow and, and his future and retirement and, you know, and or wishing and dreaming maybe that the other cat that we're supposed to have, but we only see it every two or three weeks. It just kind of shows up, and we don't know where it is after that. Maybe he's wondering where Callie is and what's going on. I I don't think any of that's going on. We're different than that, and we're like God in this way. We can speak. We can communicate. By the way, just try to imagine what that communication was like, the first marriage. Probably just exactly like our marriages, right? Words never used as a weapon in any way. No communication struggles, no arguments, no lies, no words of hate, no frustration, irritation, impatience ever. No irritated retorts, no yelling, no cursing, no criticism, no condemnation, no pride-motivated words, no deception, no manipulation. No selfishness. Truth never used, even though it's true, never used to tear down the other person. Every single word spoken in love. You realize all that was reflecting the glory of God then. What he designed for communication to do and to be. Every word met the standard of God's own example, his own speech, his own design. So to summarize here, words affect all other things that we do as human, every every aspect of our life, and God is the one that created it. God's the one that gave it value. And still today, there is nothing we depend on more than our ability to give and receive communication. Now, since God is the one who created it, he does have a will for it. As I've said, he has a design for it. He has a specific plan for it, a purpose for what humans, humans are to communicate, a plan and a design for how we are to communicate. And that's true of 
both sides of communication, and by that I mean both the verbal and the nonverbal side. We, we do communicate with words. We communicate through body language and facial expressions. That's the nonverbal side of that. God has a design for every aspect of it. He still does expect every word we speak to be up to his standard. And according to that design, everything we say is supposed to be reflecting his glory, like Adam and Eve did before the fall. But we have to be honest, it's not that way many times in our experience, is it? Why? Because God was not the only one that spoke. Adam and Eve were not the only humans that spoke. There wasn't just three who spoke back then. You get to chapter 3 and somebody else spoke. The serpent. Satan. He enters into the story. He spoke. He had words. And with his words... Every aspect of our human experience ended up then resulting in a state of confusion and sin and struggle. And we understand that theologically. All all our trouble in every aspect of our lives has its roots there. Genesis 3, Satan speaking. All problems that we have with communication, whether it's in marriage, you know, just hypothetically, or with a neighbor or parent to children... Friendships, ministry relationships here at church, all our trouble with speech has its roots there in the fall. Now, what did Satan do with his words that ended up then being the catalyst for the fall of the entire human race? What happened there as a result of that communication? What happened in Adam and Eve's communication then from that point on? Well, we know what he did there. His speech was a challenge of the authority that God had. That's how he used his communication, challenging God's authority. He used his communication to cause them to begin to interpret life differently than the way God interprets it. For the very first time, a lie was spoken when Satan spoke. For the first time from that point onward, people began to speak against one another, speak sinfully. And all the effects of that continue today. There's the source of the problem we experience when talking with one another. We, we have bought into that usurping of the authority of God. We have our own design for our speech and communication. We have our own purposes now. We say what we want to say. We say it how we want to say it. We say it when we want to say it. We are now speaking as if we are the ones in charge. We communicate as if we have a right to use our words for what we want to use them for. We speak as if we have a right to use our words to to make ourselves happy. You summarize that, we're speaking as if we're God sometimes, rather than his creatures who are called to submit to his authority and his design for our speech. And we don't respond to people or circumstances based on reality and facts. No, in our sort of conscious or 
non-conscious efforts to usurp the authority of God, we respond to things based on how we interpret facts. Instead of asking ourselves, you know, how would God evaluate this? How would God respond? What is his design for this? We let our thoughts run without challenging them with Scripture. So what is wrong then in our speech is not just the vocabulary we're using. It's not the choice of words alone at the moment. It's not even the tone of voice that's wrong in the moment. Those things can be wrong, but what's driving it all is a way of looking at life that does not agree with what God says is right and true. And so we don't even completely tell the truth. Even though godly communication is very dependent on that, and we'll see it in a moment in Proverbs... Lies distort reality and facts. They distort, destroy trust between people. And it is true, every word we speak is rooted either in truth or in, in a lie. We end up distorting things, manipulating. We reshape the facts to our own advantage because we function as if we're God in those moments. We can take events and we can recast them and spin them. What's really amazing, because of the flesh that we carry with us, when we lie, manipulate, and shape the facts and recast events, we can do that in such a way and to such a point that we can even convince ourselves that our perspectives are the ones that are true. We make accusations, we put down people, we take somebody else's communication and we throw it back in their face and use it against them, we blame others. You get the point. Words today that challenge God's authority, words that are lies, words that represent false interpretations, accusations, all of that, they have their origin in Satan's speech in the garden. So we're not reflecting God's image anymore with our words. We're reflecting somebody else's image, the serpents, Satan. We're no longer seeking to make our communication match God's standard, we, which raises us up to a standard, we instead speak down to Satan's standard. So there's really the bottom line choice. When we talk, we're either imaging our Creator and Lord or we're imaging the serpent, Satan. Now, we want to talk tonight more specifically about communication then that is meeting God's design, communication that images our Creator. And we find much direction and counsel from the Lord in the book of Proverbs. So let's, let's just summarize the points we find there. As you see in your notes, what, what, what ought to be the first thing we're thinking about is, is to realize that, that Proverbs has these verses that give us this sort of 30,000-foot level. I think they're flying higher now on some of those planes, you know. But anyway, the, the 40,000-foot level of the significance of taking this seriously and literally doing what Proverbs says, guarding our mouths. We have to do that. We're on this side of Genesis 3. So you have some verses there. Proverbs 13.3. It's God's Word, so it's worth reading. The one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. This is the one who's not taking it seriously, not realizing there is a design, a godly design for our speech. 
No, we just we can say whatever we want, however we want to say it. We're not guarding our mouth. Proverbs twenty one twenty three, another one. He who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. So the first verse talks about avoiding ruin. It just says it a different way now. We guard ourselves from troubles. We get ourselves in trouble by the way we speak. So this is where it all begins, biblical speech. It begins with an attitude of guarding our lips, being on guard. And guarding is for a certain purpose. The purpose is that we end up being like God, or to put it in proverb-type terms, we guard our mouth so we end up being wise in how we communicate. Proverbs 10.31, the mouth of the righteous flows with wisdom. 15.2, the tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. But there's another kind of person, the mouth of fools just spouts folly. Not on guard. 15.28, the heart of the righteous, and really using a different term there, talking about the same person, the wise person, the godly person, the righteous person, the one guarding his mouth, part of that guarding includes even pondering how to answer. Got to think about this. But again, the other side, the wicked, nah, just pour out evil things. Say whatever comes to your mind, any way you want to. This wise person, 1623, the heart of the wise instructs his mouth. This goes beyond guarding and even is intentionally teaching your mouth. Mouth, listen up. Say it this way to your wife when you get home. The heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. So because the wise person is the righteous person, the righteous person is the wise person, we could even say this is called righteous speech, not just wise speech. So sometimes Proverbs puts it more in those terms. Proverbs 8.8, all the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness. There's nothing crooked or perverted in them. They're wise and righteous and holy. Proverbs 10.11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. The lips of the righteous bring forth what is acceptable. And acceptable there is, I think really it would relate to what we find in Ephesians 4.29 where it says, you know, we let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only as, as such is good for edification, something that meets the need of the moment. It's according to the need. It's acceptable. It gives grace to those who hear. There's some need. The wicked, wicked person doesn't care about that. Doesn't care about bringing forth what is acceptable. They have another agenda. They want their own goals to be reached. They, they have their own plans. Proverbs 16, 13, Righteous lips are the delight of kings. He who speaks right is loved. So that's just general instruction from Proverbs. And with that general instruction in place, we can go on then to the more specific characteristics that ought to mark our speech. And as as is common in Scripture, in Proverbs, you do find those contrasts, you know, many times like we've already read. And so really that's the put-off, put-on motif that we find in Scripture. There is something we should put off. And it always implies something that we should, I mean, put on always implies something we should put off, and that's the opposite. So many of the Proverbs are worded that way, so you can keep that put off and put on motif in mind. But what I've done is, 
And there's different ways you can do this, but I just went through in my own readings in the mornings of just paying attention to the Proverbs and, and pulling out any verse at all that, that has something to do with speech and communication. And then I began to look at them and make observations and see if they grouped together, which many of them did, some more clearly than others. And just for our purposes tonight, we can at least identify these three categories that these verses fit in. And, uh, you know, you could take a different approach and maybe determine that there's four or five, but I think there's a way to say that they fall under all three of these in the form of, of marks that ought to distinguish our communication. This is speech that pleases the Lord when they bear at least these three marks. So the first one is restraint. Godly, wise, righteous speech is marked by restraint. The one who's guarding his mouth is known for his restraint. Many ways the Proverbs say this. Proverbs 10, 19. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. unavoidable. I mean, that's true, isn't it? I mean, the, the more someone speaks, you know, they tell people that in courts of law, Right? Just answer the question, you know, don't add and embellish because the lawyer there, the prosecutor, the, the, the defense lawyer, whatever, is, is just listening for that opportunity to say, oh, what do you mean by that? Well, no, I mean, I didn't mean anything by that. I was just saying, oh, you've blown it. Well, that's just true in life. Many words. But he who restrains his lips is wise. There's a time for not speaking, for keeping our mouth shut. We don't have to comment on everything. Proverbs 17, 27, 28, he who restrains his words has knowledge. He's smart. He who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. This is interesting. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is, is considered by people, to that could be a wise person. He's not saying much. <laughs> When he closes his lips, he's considered prudent. Proverbs 18.2, a fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. It is the fool who believes his opinion must be known by everyone. Certainly a lot of that going on social media. There's a lot to consider then when choosing to speak. I mean, this does mean we have to think hard about the words we use. We have to think about the timing. We have to think about the tone of voice, the volume, and quantity. Let me just go ahead and interject this right now. I could save it for the end, but I'll say it now. Biblical communication, good communication is hard work. Hard work. So there's one mark, restraint. You think about that maybe in your own life. How does that apply to you? Are you known for too much speech? You know, that can take the form of too much talking about self. It can take the form of interrupting people. It can take the form of always outdoing the other person, you know, with your story. It can take the form of always needing to speak up and share your opinions, your views. It can take a lot of forms. Does it ever happen with your children or your wife that you just went too far? L let it be where it is. 
God's working. Here's another mark, honesty. And you would expect this one because there are so many Proverbs about this. Proverbs has more to say about this issue than any of the other characteristics that ought to mark our communication. Bunch of them, Proverbs 8, 7. For my mouth will utter truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. Twelve seventeen. He who speaks truth tells what is right, but a false witness, deceit. Twelve nineteen. Truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. Fourteen five. A trustworthy witness will not lie, but a false witness utters lies. There's the spinning, you know, the spin doctor idea trying to shape things, trying to manipulate. A trustworthy witness will just tell the truth. 1425, a truthful witness saves lives. It helps people. He who utters lies is a treacherous person, dangerous. 2428, don't deceive with your lips. 2518, like a club and a sword and a sharp arrow is a man who bears false witness against his neighbor. So sometimes the dishonesty comes in that form. There's several verses about that, being a false witness. But there's other forms of how our, our speech can, we can lie in other situations, whether we're spending something at work with our boss or not being honest to our wife or whatever. 2628, a lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth works ruin. That brings on the table another form of dishonesty is that, fl- that flattery. 27.6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. We have to speak the truth to people if we love them, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. The one who doesn't love us doesn't speak the truth to us. If we don't speak the truth to someone, it could be evidence that we don't genuinely love them. Yes, I'm allowing for the fact there's a time to consider the timing and and the setting and all that so that you can be wise, but we don't want to be that kind of fake friend who never tells the truth. 29.5, a man who flatters his neighbor, spreading a net for his steps, it's going to come back to haunt him at some point. And dishonesty is like that. And you see it in the sitcoms. It's a regular sort of thing that happens in sitcoms. And this has been going on for a long time, and not just, you know, once today or in the 2000s or the 90s or whatever, but I mean, you go all the way back to the ones I grew up on, you know, uh, Lucille Ball and things like that. There was a lot, of, a, a very familiar storyline was uh, deception and lying and, and getting into trouble and then being found out. It does come back to haunt us. Just keep in mind, though, some of the other forms of dishonesty that I've already alluded to dishonesty is more than just overt lying. Deceit is one of those that I've mentioned. It may not be that what you're saying is untrue. What you're saying could be true, but there's more truth that you're not telling in order to shape things. It's trying to give a dishonest impression of yourself in a situation or manipulating through kind of of, of deceit. Exaggeration is another one. That's different than hyperbole when we say things that everybody understands as hyperbole. If we say that, man, I've got a million things to do this weekend, we, we understand that's hyperbole. Nobody really is trying to do the math and figuring out how many things you need to do per minute in order to accomplish a million over three, you know. We understand. 
I'm talking about the kind of exaggeration that's meant to embellish the truth in order to manipulate. Could be sweeping generalizations or even using those words never and always, those two dangerous words that end up being extreme exaggerations and seldom true. Deceit, exaggeration, there's another form of dishonesty, evasion. Evading the issues, not really answering somebody's question, changing the subject, getting somebody off on a minor issue to avoid the real issue. A couple more here or so, not in your notes, but disguising the real message, you know, using innuendo to try to make some hints and when you, all the time you're trying to get a message across but really hiding the real truth giving backdoor messages. That conflict between the verbal and the nonverbal, that can be a form of dishonesty. Someone can speak one thing and say some words, but the tone of voice say something different. Blame shifting is, is dishonesty. When we shift the blame to someone else or somebody, some other uh, situation, what we're really doing is lying, saying that we're, we're not really the problem or not part of it. My point is, when it comes to this one, since Proverbs says so much, there's a lot to consider when you're seeking to image our Creator, seeking to develop a default setting is what we want. That default setting, so what, what naturally comes out is the truth. And the only way you make a default setting like that is to do it over and over. To think about what you're saying and make sure it's true. And you start your day with a prayer, Lord, help me today that everything that comes out of my mouth is true. Just a side comment. Why, why does Proverbs and the Word of God in general take dishonesty and lying so seriously? Why should we as parents take lying from our children even more serious than many other things? Because if you get good at lying, then you're opening the door to a lot of other sins that you'll also commit with the hope of covering them up with lies. It's a gateway sin, lying and dishonesty. So our speech ought to be marked by restraint, ought to be marked by honesty, and third, the sort of the third category, and there's several things, I'm just fleshing it out a little broadly, but we'll call it graciousness. And that fits that Ephesians 4.29 verse I mentioned as well. You know, no unwholesome words coming out of your mouth. No rotten words, but words that give grace to the one who hears. That meets the need. That's a gracious word. They're gentle words. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Harsh words just make the problem worse, stir up more anger. The second half of Proverbs 16, 21, sweetness of speech increases your persuasiveness. Proverbs 31, woman is a good example of this. It says she opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. It's not just for women. She's a good example for all of us as we instruct our wives, as we instruct our children, as we confront someone, even, the teaching of kindness ought to be on our tongue. And this kind of speech, gracious, kind speech, ends up 
being profitable for people because it encourages them. How we so need to be a source of encouragement to one another in this discouraging world that we're in. How we need to be a source of encouragement to our wives and not part of her burden. Being constantly frustrated and irritated with her. Life's hard enough for her. Being a source of encouragement to her. How we need to be a source of encouragement to our children that are growing up in such a terrible fallen world. Scripture even commands us on that one as parents. Don't exasperate your child. Don't provoke them to anger. Ephesians and Colossians. Instead, be a source of encouragement to them. And that's important. Because now we're thinking about our effect on somebody. If we're using gracious words, we can be the source of encouragement. We do need to think about other people over ourselves. See, that's the opposite of that satanic worldview that usurps the authority of God and and operates out of a perspective that we have a right to do and say what we want. No, we practice Philippians 2, esteeming others more important than ourselves. And so our gracious words can end up helping someone. And that's what these verses give us, Proverbs 12, 18. There's one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword. That hurts. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. I mean, the, great, the person who's developing this habit of gracious, kind speech is is hoping to have a positive effect on the situation, bring about a solution to something, healing even. 1225, anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. You can be the source of encouragement to somebody who has anxiety in their heart. 154, a soothing tongue is a tree of life. Here's one of those times where he gives you the opposite, perversion in it, not caring about how you speak or what you say or when. It just crushes the spirit. How many times have we crushed our wise spirit or our children? Or have you felt that from someone else? It's crushing. That's different than a soothing tongue. I like how 1624 says, pleasant words are a honeycomb. Sweet to the soul, healing to the bones. You you like to talk to people like that because they're helpful. They bring healing and encouragement. 25.11, famous verse, like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in the right circumstances. That falls under this category of graciousness because we really do want our words to have a positive impact, a healing impact on other people. The situation, it could be a group situation and tempers are starting to get a little warm and verging on hot and how often it it can happen that someone can bring some words of healing and calming that down. So there's the three marks that at least categorize a summarize a lot of the Proverbs on our speech. But let me give you the other side of that. There are the verses that, that kind of say the same thing, and we've already seen some, but I just grouped a bunch of them together that definitely talk about, emphasize the other side if you don't do those things. And, and you can say they're, they're, they're like warnings in Scripture, so that's how I've presented them to you. They make the same points, but in a negative way. 
So we'll look at them that way as warnings. So let's take that first category. We ought to be marked by restraint. Well, there's a warning against the other side of it, unrestraint. 18.7, a fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are the snare of his soul. 18.13, this is the impulsive person. He who gives an answer before he hears. It's folly and shame to him, just spouting out opinions and advice and counsel and not really listening. No restraint. In 29.20, do you see a man who's hasty in his words, you know, unrestrained? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Pretty good advice in the form of warnings, really. There are those that give the other side of the dishonest of, of honest speech, and that's dishonest speech. One is that chain of statements. I didn't give you all of them in Proverbs 6. You know, the seven things that God hates, the seven things that are an abomination to him. Twice on the list, he mentions something about dishonesty. A lying tongue, a false witness who utters lies. That is an abomination to the Lord. It's not just getting us in trouble. Not just getting Lucille Ball in trouble <laughs> with Ricky. It grieves the Lord. He hates it. 12.22, pretty straightforward. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. 19.5, a false witness will not go unpunished. He who tells lies will not escape. It's, I don't remember the expression. Oh, what a something web we weave, you know, with the lies we tell. Anyway, fill in the gaps there. Look it up on Wikipedia. 19.9, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will perish. So similar statements, 19.5, he who tells lies will not escape. This is stronger. He who tells lies will perish. So there's the other side of the, of the restraint. It's unrestraint. There's the other side of honesty. It's dishonest speech. And here's the other side of, of gracious speech. It's, it's unprofitable speech, destructive speech. Warning, 11.9, with his mouth, the godless man destroys his neighbor. You can destroy, crush other people. 11.11, by the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. But here's the warning. By the mouth of the wicked, it is torn down. And that's hyperbole, just making the point that, you know, back in those days, cities, you know, they had walls and they would come with catapults and rams and break down the wall and try to enter the city and so forth. And so it's using that, that imagery of, to stress the danger of ungodly speech. That'll bring down a civilization as well over time. 12.13, an evil man is ensnared. There's the web. There's the trap by the transgression of his lips. 18.6, a fool's lips bring strife. His mouth calls for blows. And just so you'll know, this unprofitable, ungracious speech definitely includes gossip and slander. So Proverbs addresses that kind of ungracious speech. 10.18, he who spreads slander is a fool. 11.13, he who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets. That's a gossip. But he who's trustworthy conceals a matter. There's the restraint side. See, you conceal matters. We don't have to say everything we know. 17.9, he who conceals a transgression seeks love. That's why we do it. 
But he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends, causes such damage. 18.8, the words of a whisperer, that's the person that's uttering these, this gossip and slander in secret. They're like dainty morsels. People like to hear them. At, oh, tell me, what's the latest? They go down to the innermost parts of the body. 2019, he who goes about as a slanderer, that's even stronger than gossip, but in the same sort of overall category, reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a gossip. 2620, for lack of wood, the fire goes out. But where there's, and where there's no whisperer, the contention quiets down. So the opposite of that is true. The gossip, the slander, just fans the fire and keeps problems going. No restraint. No real gracious speech of what will build up and edify. It's unprofitable. The bottom line issue in ungracious and unprofitable speech is that we care too much about self. That's why we do it. There's a payoff for gossip, a payoff for slander. There's a payoff for spouting our opinions. It makes us feel good. And we can deceive ourselves into thinking we're Respected in the eyes of other people because we know so much. But it's really just to focus on self. And so Proverbs does address that. It's interesting how these two verses here, it doesn't teach everything we need to know about self, but it gives you a little window into a focus on self. Proverbs 27, 2. Let another praise you and not your own mouth. That's just the picture of the prideful person who's exalting self. No, let somebody else do that. Don't be focused on self. Proverbs 30, 32, if you've been foolish in exalting yourself or if you've plotted evil, here's the solution. Put your hand over your mouth. You know? So it's okay to do that. Do that. If we see you walking around the lobby with a hand over your mouth, we know you're working on something. You know, That's okay. We need to pray for you. We all need to do that maybe. Well, let me conclude all this for us. Obviously, a lot of the Bible's teaching on communication is found in Proverbs. There's principles elsewhere, like Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, but, or 4, maybe it is. But what we do find here certainly is good counsel. It gives us plenty to work on. But keep this in mind. A failure to communicate biblically ends up being a heart issue all of this. Bad speech, wicked communication is a moral problem. Matthew 12, 34, part of the verse says this, Jesus said it, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. What's coming out of our mouth is really just manifesting and evidencing what is in our hearts. If there's no graciousness in the heart, humility there, there'll be no grace and humility in our words. So to say it differently, since bad communication is not, first of all, a skill problem, I mean, we can learn skill, but it's not just that. And because of that, what's needed is not just behavior modification. Change must take place at the level of the heart. And this is true of an individual, and it's true of a married couple of friends. Until individuals and couples come to grip with this fact, there is no then practical help that anyone can give them that will make any kind of long-term difference. 
in their communication. You can teach skill, say it this way and not that way, but if they're not dealing with what's driving it all in their heart, then it won't make a long-term change, and that's true of you, it's true of me. The same point is really made in that classic book, uh, classic portion of the New Testament, James chapter 3, that, 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 long, that section there where he talks about how dangerous the tongue is and uses the analogy of a little rudder that turns the ship and says our tongue is set on fire by hell. But he makes the statement in James 3.8, no one can tame the tongue. What does he mean by that? It doesn't mean that God can't do it, but part of his point there is that our communication problems aren't solved by mere human techniques, normal human means. You, you can't just change your job, change the location, move somewhere else. You can't just get more education or training and ultimately solve a moral problem. All this does take personal effort. I've already said that. It plays a role. But personal effort alone won't do it. Only God can truly change what needs to be changed. So we seek His help with this. The first answer when there is a communication problem is go before the Lord and search your own heart. Search your own heart for what's coming out of your mouth. What's coming out of your mouth is evidencing what's in your heart. Like a poisoned well, and you're not going to get good water out of it. So here's some example questions. There are others, you know, depending on where we struggle. Is there a lack of openness with your wife or someone else? Reluctant to really communicate and reveal yourself to your spouse or someone, at the end of the day, there's pride in the heart, okay? Pride and or fear, two sides of a coin, really. Are your words unloving, harsh, cutting, critical? Well, there's a lack of grace and love in the heart. Is the focus of the conversation always on yourself, your own needs? Then there's a love of self in the heart, and that's sin. Again, the point is there just won't be any change in communication until there's true acknowledgement, true confession, true repentance at the heart level. So pray this. It's in your notes, Psalm 139. This is what you pray on any issue. Search me, O God, and know my heart. He does. Try me. Know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. If you're really struggling with irritating, critical, condescending words to your wife on a regular basis, you've got to go back to then the heart. What is the payoff for you in doing that? There's a payoff. There's a goal you have, and that's what's wrong. Just learning new things to say is not going to ultimately solve the problem. But the Lord searching your heart by His Spirit and the truth of Scripture helps you identify then what those idols are, what those payoffs there that are there for you. And with the Lord's help, you get a different payoff. The payoff needs to be what will please and glorify the Lord at that moment. And second, what will give grace to my wife or grace to my coworker, my friend. We do have hope for this because... There's hope in Christ. There's hope for change in any area of our lives in Christ. So remind yourself of the essence of the gospel. You know, 
that no amount of behavior modification, no cleaning up, no improving of your communication or any other aspect of your life is ever going to earn God's love and acceptance. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not about behavior modification. The gospel is about the perfect life that Christ lived in our place that we could never live and then dying the death that we deserved in our place and through our faith in Him or, or by His grace and through our faith in Him, trust in Him alone, He counts all that toward us and saves us. The perfect life of Christ, He credits that to us and the death that He died, the payment credits that to us. And so we're accepted all because of what somebody else has done, not because of what we could do. So we live our lives conscious of that, knowing that because Jesus came, because he lived, because he died, because he was raised from the dead for his people, we can know God, and as well, we can grow to be more like the Lord. We can learn to speak in a way that pleases him. Just take comfort in promises like 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We, we can grow in this area. We, we can experience a measure of, of change in our, in our communication where it's more godly and, and people start to know that about us, especially those closest to us. Through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence, for by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by, by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that Corruption is in the world by lust. We have everything we need in Christ, the living word, and his magnificent promises, the written word, everything we need for life and godliness, everything we need to live a life that pleases the Lord, including in such a difficult area for us, sometimes communication. So that's what the gospel is all about. The message of the gospel is God changes who we are. Because of his indwelling presence in our lives by his spirit, we, we, can, we can live lives to his glory. And if there's failure in moments of time, we humble ourselves before the Lord and we repent of that. And we humble ourselves before the person we've sinned against with our speech, a friend, a ministry, a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, a, a wife, a child. And we tell them, we know the real problem was not the words itself. It's not just, hey, sorry for that. All right, we're okay now, right? We're good. It's my heart. I loved myself more than I loved God or you in that moment. There's the bottom line. And don't try to punt to the thing that, well, you don't know how hard my life is. You know, you don't know, you know, what my wife is like what my kids are like, what my boss is like, my coworker that I have to stand next to every day. You don't know what they're like. You don't know my neighbor. No, I don't. But God does. And he gave you this promise in his word, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, long before you were ever born or your neighbor was born. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able Apply that to any struggles in communication, impatient, critical words to your wife or your children. It's not beyond what you're able to experience some growth in. With the temptation, there is the way of escape so that you can grow through it, you can endure it, 
The Lord will never put you in a situation without giving you everything you need to do what he has called you to do. So let's commit ourselves again tonight to communicating in a, in a way, making a habit of it, a default setting, so that we're imaging our creator and not the serpent. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the wisdom of your word You teach us in Proverbs to cry out for it, to seek it, to pursue wisdom. And wisdom and knowledge, of course, begins with the fear of God in our hearts, reverencing you above all things and all people, reverencing your will, your ways above our own, submitting ourselves to the reality that you're the king, you're God, we are not. You have all authority, we don't. And that we are here to be vessels for your glory. Lord, this is, can be such an area of struggle for us, our communication. We, we may even experience victory in other areas and still come back to struggle with this, with our wives, our children, people that are the closest to us. That's where we're tested the most. So Lord, I pray for all these men tonight, including myself, that you would give us your grace, that we might learn a new default setting, that we might be recognized as men who speak wisely and humbly with restraint, honestly, profitably for others, gracious. Certainly need your help for all that. In Christ's name, amen.